Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Great, well, good morning. It's um, cold Saturday morning, very beautiful. I stayed in Rotherham last night, so I was driving over the, um, we were trying to work out, I think it might be the Snake Pass from Rotherham over to here. Absolutely stunning morning. And you look down on the city of Manchester and you think, wow, what a great place to live. You guys are blessed, eh? And um, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Joshua, Judges and Ruth. And they can be really difficult books. And we're going to be honest about some of the challenges um, because I think it's important to understand that sometimes the Bible can be difficult or can say really challenging things. But they're also really beautiful books full of kind of sweetness and beauty and I hope we get some of that as well. And then the second session we're going to be looking today at mission and talking about um, God's mission in the world and the way that God has always done that in scripture and the way that he wants to do that today through our lives as well. So hopefully both feed your brain and inspire your heart and also speak into your kind of life shape, life plan as well. That would be the dream. That's what we believe about the Bible, isn't it? Um, I've got a couple of books that I've written that touch both of these subjects and I've got some copies here today. Um, So let me just wave them at you. So Global Humility is about mission, and it's essentially saying the most important thing about uh, sharing the gospel with people from different backgrounds and different cultures is your attitude. And rather than going in and going, we've got all the answers and you're wrong, actually going in respectfully. And so it's a book about mission uh, to people that are different from you, but doing that with respect. And then The Bethlehem Story is a book really that tracks The story of Bethlehem all the way through the Bible keeps popping up this little place, ending with the birth of Jesus there. And so it talks about why that's important. But in doing that, it will touch some of the things that we're touching today in Joshua and Judges and Ruth, uh, where there are kind of a popping up of this theme of Bethlehem as an important place in the Bible. So uh, you can have either of these for a tenner. So um, I don't know. People don't tend to carry cash these days, but you never know. Um, Great. So. We're going to start with Joshua, if that's okay. You should have some notes. And, um, yep, that's working. Cool, it feels like a bit of a like, cold start, isn't it? It's like we've all just wandered in, have our cup of tea. Right, off we go into Joshua. Uh, quite a challenging book of the Bible. So um, take a deep breath. And um, here we go. Uh, we're going to look at the story of Joshua. And then we're going to look at one issue in the theology of Joshua that can be challenging. And uh, there'll be an opportunity to kind of discuss that in our tables. So the story of Joshua, when when did it happen in history? Uh, Dating the conquest has always been quite difficult. Any archaeology in Israel is difficult because it's been settled for so long and dug up so many times. You go down layers. It's always quite difficult to actually date things quite accurately in terms of when they happened. Uh, so for example, Jericho, archaeology, uh, Jericho is probably one of the oldest cities in the world in history. Um, could be 5,000 years old. And archaeologists have 
found evidence, they think, of this collapse of the city walls that you see, this kind of spontaneous collapse, like an earthquake or something where the city walls collapsed. But then other archaeologists have um, disproved that. <laughs> so it's, it's quite difficult to kind of place it historically. Um, but the whole conquest took seven years in the book of Joshua. And we can see immediately that that's a symbolic number. In the Bible, you keep getting the number seven. And actually, that's much more about what it tells us about God and about theology than it is about history. Um, and so Joshua eleven twenty three, we read, this, the conquest took seven years and then the land had rest. And so seven is the number of creation, it's the, number of, it's the number of years that they take to build the temple. And so there's something about building a home for God in the book of Joshua, like take, you know, bringing a place for the presence of God to be with his people and then rest coming. And so um, probably I think the most popular dates actually for the conquest are those seven years being 1406 BC to 1399 BC. So just on the turn of the century there. Uh, 1,400 years before Jesus. And that's just when the Bronze Age was becoming the Iron Age. So some people had bronze weapons and other people had iron weapons. And you see that a little bit in the Bible because iron usually wins. Um, they come right up to the edge of the Promised Land out of the wilderness. And then 10 spies say, no, we can't do it. It's too scary. And two spies say, maybe God's with us. Maybe we can do this. And those two are Caleb and Joshua. And um, then they go back and they have 40 more years in the wilderness because of their unbelief until this whole unbelieving generation has died out. Uh, and now they're coming and only Joshua and Caleb are still alive from the whole nation. And everyone else is kind of under 40 years old. So it's quite a young nation. And here they come, coming in to inherit the land. And so the, the, the key vocabulary in the book of Joshua, um, you've got this word land is over 100 times, the word inheritance over 50 times. That kind of shows the focus of the book. And the language in Joshua is very similar to the language in Deuteronomy. You can read these two books together almost as part one. You know, like you read Luke and Acts as like part one and part two. You can do that with Deuteronomy and Joshua. Deuteronomy says everything that's going to happen when you take the land, and then Joshua is the story of them taking the land. And for us as Christians reading the book of Joshua, there's an extra level of meaning for us. So the name Yeshua, Joshua, that's the name that Jesus is given by his dad. So Jesus' name is actually Josh. Yeah, and Joshua means God saves. Je is from Yahweh, Jehovah, and then Shua is to save or to rescue or to deliver. So Joshua means God saves, and that's Jesus' name, Yeshua, God saves. That's his name, and we just translate it into English as Jesus. And so this Joshua is coming to rescue his people from wandering around in the desert and to bring them into a place where they can have rest, where they can belong, where they can feel secure, that they can call home. And that is the same thing that Jesus does 
for people. He comes into the world to get hold of people like you and me that have been wandering around in the desert thinking, I'm not quite sure what I'm living for or where I'm going. And he gives us rest. He brings us home. He puts us into a place where we can say, ah, I belong here. And so, just a quote from uh, a book by Roberts and Wilson. As Joshua leads his people into a land flowing with milk and honey, complete with cities they did not build and vineyards they did not plant, we are reminded that one day freedom will come and a true and better Joshua will bring God's people through the waters, rescue prostitutes and sinners and Gentiles and provide them all with an inheritance of peace abundance and rest just not yet and so as Christians when you read the book of Joshua you're also thinking oh well this is our story we're in the story we're like these people that are being brought by our great Joshua over the river out of the desert out of wandering around aimlessly out of slavery and into a place of belonging and rest and home amen so The book of Joshua is split into two halves, really. The first 12 chapters are what is called the book of conquests. And then the second 12 chapters is called the book of appointments. Um, In the first half of the book, and they've got different tones, if you read it. The first half of the book, the book of conquests, Israel is unstoppable. They're like a divinely ordained bulldozer. They're just, they win this battle, they win this battle, they win this battle, and it's all like, whoa, this is incredible. Victory and conquest, with the exception of the Akan story in chapter seven, and we'll see that in a moment. The second half of the book is a bit more gray. It's a bit more, they win some battles and they lose some battles. Um, You know, some things work and some things don't work. And, um, there's some failures, there's some incomplete things. And I, I, some Christians kind of live thinking that the world is like the first half, and it's all like victory and smashing, and yeah, you know, Jesus is with me, who could be against me? And then other Christians live in a bit more of a grey reality where you think, I win some stuff and I lose some stuff. Sometimes I'm doing well, sometimes I'm not doing well. I wonder which you're like. Um, but you can see both in the book of Joshua. And um, the first half of the book is about the whole people traveling around and taking their inheritance together. So they win a battle here, and then they win a battle here. And, and then the second half of the book is about all the different tribes, each one getting its own thing. So, you know, the tribe of Judah into the southern hills, the tribe of Dan up into the north, the tribe of Naphtali over on the coastland. And so each tribe is then getting its own inheritance. And again, the, the Christian story... Um, has both of these elements. There are, there are things that the church together needs to get hold of, and there are things that individual Christians need to get hold of. And so our story is part of the big story of the people of God. And again, it's relevant because when we talk about mission later on, that's the thing. It's not just what is my personal inheritance, what is my personal calling, what does God want me to do? It's also, how does that fit into the wider story of what God's doing in the world today? And and how how does my little piece of the jigsaw fit into the big, beautiful picture that God's painting? And so there's there's both. There's the corporate story of the people of God and the individual story of the sons and daughters of God and how those fit together. And we see that in Joshua. Is that okay? 
Great. Okay, so the first book, the Book of Conquests, they come into the land, they cross the Jordan, they circumcised, they celebrate Passover, and then they take Jericho. And uh, Eugene Merrill, he says, this whole sequence, circumcision, Passover, and theophany, the appearance of God, emphatically declared that the Israel of context, conquest was the same as the Israel of Exodus. The God who had saved his people out of Egypt will now save them into Canaan. So when they came out of Egypt, these things happened. Passover, seeing God, and now the same things happen on their way in. So it's like God is the same. He brought you out and he'll bring you in. The taking of Jericho is the, the classic Sunday school story, isn't it? They, they march around the walls, the walls come down. And um, I think the whole thing of this bizarre strategy, Schreiner says, the bizarre strategy confirmed that Israel could not attribute victory to its own military prowess. The victory was a gift of grace and a standing work of the Lord. Don't let anyone read it and go, Cor, Joshua was a brilliant general with a great strategy. No, it was a nonsense strategy. It's balmy. We're just going to walk around and play trumpets. Like, that's not how you fight. <laughs> but then God is with them. And so, again, it's not really a book about kind of leadership or strategy. It just shows God is with them and they're obedient to what God's asked them to do. And seven, the, the, the story of Jericho is all full of sevens. You know, seven times around the wall. On the seventh day, they go around seven times. Seven is God's number. And, Josh, and, and Jericho falls on the Sabbath on the seventh day, on God's day, the day when people don't do anything and God does this. So the whole thing is designed to show you that God is doing something, not people. And um, in, the, in this first bit of Joshua, there are two well-developed characters. There's Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, and there's Achan, who's from the tribe of Judah, which is like the leading tribe in the people of Israel. So you've got these two characters and actually they're really contrasted, these two. It's, it's like they swap places in a way. Rahab is a Canaanite, she's a prostitute. Remember when you tell the story of all the city falling down and being burned with fire, it's not quite true. The whole city falls down except one house. Rahab's house. One earthquake proof house, one fireproof house the house of the prostitute, she's invited her whole family in and those who enter are saved and those who don't are not. It's like Noah's Ark, it's like Jesus. Those who enter are saved and those who don't are not. And so Rahab here is this wonderful picture of obedience and faith and responding to God and being rescued. And by contrast, Achan who's from the, the tro chosen tribe of Judah, the tribe from which Messiah is going to come. Um, someone who's quite wealthy, he's a man, he's quite important culturally in many ways, and yet he messes up, he doesn't show faith, he steals stuff and hides it. Remember, under the little, he digs a little hole under his carpet in his tent and hides stuff there and lies about it. And he and his whole family... They're destroyed. And so what you see is you can see a contrast between Rahab and Achan that's quite distinct. So she's a Canaanite woman. He's a Jewish man. There's a little table in your notes of contrast. She's a prostitute, which is like a suspect profession. He's impeccable pedigree from the tribe of Judah. She shows what's called in the story chesed, which is a Jewish word meaning 
faithfulness, loving kindness, uh, respectful loyalty. And he shows covetousness. He's got stuff, but he wants more stuff. Uh, she's rescued from the ban, and we'll come on to the ban in a moment because it's such a difficult issue, the fact that people are destroyed. Uh, whereas Akan comes under the ban, and him and his whole family are put to death. She's rescued with her whole family. He's destroyed with his whole family. So her journey is from shame to honor, from enemy to family, from outsider to insider. And his journey is the opposite, from family to enemy, from insider to outsider, from accepted to rejected. And she's added in, and she's actually added into the tribe of Judah. She ends up marrying someone from the tribe of Judah uh, called Salmon, who we'll see a little bit later. And Achan is removed from the chosen tribe of Judah. So you've got this contrast between the two, and that really shows you something about how to respond to God. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So often he works with the, the unexpected and the outsider, and those sometimes that are presumptive and proud can know rejection and it's a big theme in the bible and um, we'll see it again in the book of judges and so that is the first half and then the second half of the book uh, the book of appointments chapters 13 to 24 is really about parceling out the land then to the different tribes so that each different tribe is going to get its inheritance and the first person to get their inheritance is Caleb because he's been this faithful guy that stuck with it, and he's the only old guy in the nation. And now he's like 80 years old, and he gets his inheritance. Um, then the tribe of Judah, because they're the ones that have been chosen. From Judah is going to come King David, and from the line of King David is going to come our Lord Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So this tribe of Judah of all of the tribes is the chosen one of God. And um, so then they get their inheritance next. Uh, and then Joseph. And so we can see that the order of the honor of the tribes has been established now. The question uh, all the way through the book of Genesis was of the 12 sons of Israel, which one is going to be the chosen one of God? Uh, and the first three, Reuben, Simeon and Levi, they all disqualify themselves in Genesis in different ways. And the fourth-born, Judah, is the one that ends up being the, the chosen one, the anointed one. And we don't have time to go into how that happened in the story. Uh, but now Judah is carrying this anointing. And you see it in Genesis chapter 49. You see the prophecy. Uh, Israel is prophesying over all of his sons in age order in Genesis 49. So he goes to Reuben and he says, nope, you disqualified yourself, sorry. Uh, then he comes to Simeon and Levi. No, you guys have disqualified yourselves. Then he comes to Judah and he says, Judah, you are like a lion. You are carrying a scepter. In you, there's going to be this kingship. In Genesis 49, this prophecy happens. And so the land is allotted really in that order, the order of honor. And Simeon and Levi, who'd both been disqualified, neither gets a proper inheritance uh, in Joshua. Simeon's inheritance is kind of within Judah's area. And Levi doesn't get a piece of land at all, but instead they get this priesthood that's distributed throughout the nation. Um, and so that's the second half, really, of the book of Joshua. So that's kind of a... a I mean, it's such a painfully brief kind of overview. I appreciate that. Um, 
we're just going to look now at one theological issue in Joshua that's really painful when you read it for lots of different reasons. And this, this is the problem of what's called in the Hebrew Bible haram, which is often translated the ban in our translations or the destruction. And it, haram, it means like really cursed, pushed away from God, pushed outside of the promise of God. And nowhere in the Bible, really, do you get a more palpable discrepancy between the values and expectations of ancient Near Eastern culture. This book, you know, is written in a different place, in a different time. And you get a massive discrepancy between that and then what we might be feeling in 21st century Manchester. And so how do you bridge that gap between what was happening there and what happens now? And um, this idea of uh, outsiders to God can be destroyed or put to the sword or killed, it has been misused by Christians in history. So people have taken from the book of Joshua. So um, the dispossession of indigenous peoples in different places has been justified by verses like this. Um, in apartheid, um, the, my wife is South African, she grew up during apartheid in South Africa, and those that were in power used verses from Joshua to oppress people on the basis of race. You know, apartheid means separateness, so you live over there and we'll live over here and we'll have different life tracks. And it was justified by verses in Joshua. Um, in modern times, the Israeli dispossession of Palestinians in the same part of the world, you know, it can be justified by verses like this. And so Palestinians that have lived in the same bit of land their whole life are suddenly pushed out and they're told, well, the book of Joshua tells us that we can treat you like this. So can God really favor one race over another? Does God have favorites ethnically? And also, if you're ever talking to a Muslim, you can't say to your Muslim friend, oh, well, you've got violence in the Quran, but we don't have any violence in our religion, because they can point to the book of Joshua and go, well, what do you do about that? It's a pretty violent book. So what have Christians done about this over the years? I'm not going to give you one answer. I'm going to give you five. And then on your tables, you're going to discuss and figure out which one of these answers you feel the most comfortable with. Okay? And it's okay if you don't feel comfortable with any of them. Number one, haram is metaphorical, not military. So in other words, you kind of allegorize it like people do it often with the Old Testament. So the meaning is not to cut off people, it's to cut off sin from your life, to cut off bad habits, to kill them, uh, to go to war on your flesh. So it's metaphorical and it's about your moral being. Okay. Number two, some people say haram was normal for all nations at the time. Uh, so everyone, when they fought, that they killed all their enemies and burned them all. Um, so God wasn't doing something more cruel than was expected. Genocide was normative. And so don't judge scripture through your 20th century, 21st century moral lens. That's, you're just judging a different culture and a different time. You can't do that. Okay. Number three, haram was a utopian retrospective idea that was written down in the book of Joshua, but it never really happened. 
Um, like the idea of Jubilee, some people would say, you know, Jubilee, every 50 years, all slaves are set free, all land is given back. Like some people say, that never actually happened. It was just a kind of a nice idea that was built in to show us something about God. Um, and again, Robert Alter, he says, the fact that this narrative doesn't correspond to what we can reconstruct of the actual history of Canaan offers, in other words, archaeologists can't find a lot of evidence for some of the stuff in Joshua. That gives us a consolation. Um, the blood-curdling report of the massacre of the entire population of Canaanite towns, men, women, and children, in some cases livestock, never happened. In other words, they, they never found mass graves with thousands of bodies of bones. You know, so there's no archaeological evidence that this ever happened. That's actually quite a refreshing thing. Okay. Number four, and this is what the rabbis in the Jewish tradition have often said, Haram was justified at that time against those seven nations in Canaan because of their particular wickedness, but it's now obsolete. So it was a one-time deal. And then number five, the fifth one, is that actually the thing to look for in Joshua is the surprise element, the unexpected element, because that overthrows some of these narratives of the powerful oppressing the powerless in the name of God. So to say God is on our side against others is dangerous. And in Joshua, this is repeatedly mitigated by the element of surprise. So for example, Rahab is rescued. She's brought in. It's a, but Achan, who's part of Israel, is actually put under the ban. So it's a, it's a surprise that, that means you can't just go, well, God's on your side and he hates you. Because there's always going to be unexpected things that happen. And more Strongly, in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13, you've got this famous moment. And we just read, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? So he sees like an angel or something holding a sword. And he says, Are you on our side or are you on their side? And that's partly this question, isn't it? It's, whose side is God on? And he said, no. <laughs> I, love, I, you know, I love the Bible sometimes. Are you on our side or their side? No. Um, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I've come. And Joshua fell on his face and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, because the place where you're standing is holy. Um, and so, in other words, God isn't on anybody's side. So there's this element of surprise, unexpectedness. Okay, so there's those five solutions. Uh, you've got them in your notes. What we're going to do now is uh, discuss on your tables. You've got 10 minutes. Um, discuss this issue and go, do you like any of these solutions? Do you like none of them? Do you have your own solution? Um, and so what, what are we going to do with this? If you're talking to your Muslim friend and he points at the violence and the genocide here, and he says, that's what the Crusades were, that's what Christians have always done. How do you answer that? Okay. Um, so, 10 minutes on your tables, discuss. So Judges is the next book of the Bible, but it's so different to Joshua in the way that it's written, in its style, in its tone, in its emphases. And um, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at an overview of Judges. Uh, we're going to look at uh, one character in particular, Samson, fascinating character, and just try and see an example of how we can 
read and how we can draw learnings out from the book of Judges. And then we're going to look at how Judges fits into the whole story of the Bible and how it's bringing us towards David as king. So we're going to try and do three things. So the first thing, an overview of the book of Judges. Does anyone have a favorite judge from the book of Judges? Deborah, Gideon, Samson. Um, Gideon is very human, isn't he? He's very ordinary. Um, So we're just going to read a bit of the introduction to Judges, Judges 2, 16 to 19. And there's a bit of space in the notes. And this is the spiral that repeats itself through the book. And I wonder if you want to try and draw for yourself a kind of a, a, a bit of this spiral or a bit of the kind of how, how it works as we read it. Because Judges just kind of goes round and round but keeps getting worse and worse at the same time. So the same mistakes keep happening, but every time things get a little bit worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse. So Judges 2 and verse 16. Then the Lord raised up Judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who'd obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So what you have there is you have this thing of kind of the people are a mess. God raises up a judge. God is with the judge. He rescues them. He saves them. As long as the judge is there with the anointing of God, things seem to go well. Then the judge dies and everything gets even worse and they get into a mess and then God raises up another judge. And so you get this kind of cycle. It goes round and round, but it's also getting worse and worse. And um, uh, this word judges um, is probably not the best translation. When we think of a judge, we think of something quite sort of passive um, that's there to make decisions. Um, actually, it could mean saviors or deliverers. So again, when you've got the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those, it's the same word as we had in um, the name Joshua, God saves. And so it's God raised up people to deliver them, to rescue them. There's a bit more active power to it, if that makes sense. And um, you often get in judges... Uh, the numbers are not historical, they're more symbolical. Okay, so you often get 40 years. This judge reigned for 40 years, then he died. This judge reigned for 40 years, then he died. It'd be a huge coincidence if they were all dying at exactly the 40-year mark. And so what we understand, 40 years means a generation. So the people were in the wilderness for 40 years. It means as long as anyone can remember. Okay, so 40 years without a judge means as long as anyone can remember, things have always been bad. And 40 years with a judge means as long as anyone can remember, things have always been stable. 
Um, so it's not a history like Kings. The book of Kings is all, you know, this king reigned for 17 years, this king reigned for 23 years. It's written as a, an accurate history in terms of time. Judges is written much more with these big symbolic chunks of time. It's not that these weren't historical characters, it's just the style of writing is much less literal in terms of numbers. Does that make sense? Um, one of the big themes in the book of Judges is the theme of unlikeliness, okay? And this is often the case with charismatic authority. God raises up who he wants to raise up, and it's often someone that you wouldn't expect. So Ehud is left-handed. In those days, that was like, oh, witchcraft, freakish. Left hand, no one's left-handed, that's weird. Deborah was a woman. <sighs> Countercultural. Gideon was a wuss. He's terrified. He had no backbone. Jephthah was the son of a prostitute and rejected by his family. And his family push him out and say, we're not interested in you. Samson was a playboy. He's got girlfriends everywhere. And so there's this theme of unlikely people being chosen by God. And that encourages me. <laughs> Maybe it encourages you too. There are seven major judges in the book of Judges. and You've got them in your notes. And then including the minor judges as well, the sort of the smaller ones that only get a few verses, there are 12 judges in total. Um, it starts with Othniel, who's a good guy from Judah, a kind of likely person, if you like, from the tribe of Judah. And it ends with Samson, who's a naughty boy from the tribe of Dan, which is the most northerly, most marginal tribe. And so not only is there a degenerative cycle in Judges, but actually uh, the Judges are coming from further and further away from the center of the nation. So they're, they're geographically increasingly marginal as well. Um, and right in the center of the book, as my brother at the back said, Gideon, he's right in the center of the book. He's kind of the typical judge story. All the elements from the other stories, you find them in the story of Gideon. That's the sort of the, the typical example of uh, how God calls a judge. And um, in the first books of the Bible, we hear a lot about priests. But then you get to the book of Judges and you don't hear, so where are the priests? You don't see anyone from the tribe of Levi, really. Um, and then in the last couple of chapters, we meet two priests and they're both corrupt. And so you realize one of the reasons that the nation is a mess is that the priesthood has disappeared and there's no worship of God that's uniting the nation. I just want to read something from Yale Ziegler. Uh, you'll see uh, in the notes, there's quotes from a guy called Robert Alter quite a lot. There's quotes from Yale Ziegler quite a lot. These are Jewish uh, scholars of the Old Testament. And I strongly believe that when you read the Old Testament, you need to read Jewish writers, not just Christian ones, because the Jews have a very long tradition of studying these scriptures. And actually, it's their book, and we, we are kind of stepping into their story. So it's important. And Yale Ziegler, I find really helpful. She's based in the University of Jerusalem. Um, she says this, 
Notably, there appears to be a geographical component to their decline. The tribal area of each successive leader is increasingly farther removed from the tribal area of Judah. The leader following the Judean Othniel is Ehud from Benjamin, which is north of Judah. Then Deborah in Ephraim, which is north of Benjamin. Gideon from western Manasseh, which is north of Ephraim. Jephthah from Gilead on the eastern side of the Jordan. And then Samson from Dan. This suggests that there's a correlation between the growing physical distance of the leader from the tribe that's meant to lead, Judah, and the progressive deterioration of the judges. So it's another way of saying things are getting worse and worse. They're getting further and further away from God's ideal, which is a king who will come from Judah. Uh, and in Judges, right at the beginning, you've got God says Judah shall arise. And right at the end, you've got, you've got God says Judah shall arise. So it's bookended by this desire for Judah to lead. And all of that says, maybe this mess is happening because Judah isn't leading, because the king from Judah hasn't come yet. And so it's pointing towards David, who will be the king from Judah that will unite the nation. And it's pointing towards Jesus, who will be ultimately the king from Judah, who will ultimately unite all the nations of the world. So it's saying because the king from Judah hasn't come yet, we've got a mess. It, Judges is a very brutal book. <laughs> we, we thought we'd got out of that with Joshua, now we're in Judges. And there's some very visceral, graphic pictures of killing in Judges. Uh, our Sunday school at our church the other week, they did the one where the uh, Ehud stabs the very fat king in the belly. And he's so fat that he can't get his dagger back out again because it just gets swallowed. You know, it's, it's a very graphic, visceral book. And um, every Israelite who's killed in Judges is killed by another Israelite. So again, it just shows that the nation is starting to eat itself. And Judges starts with a vengeance theme right at the beginning in chapter 1. Uh, as I've done, so God has paid me back. It's like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And that sets the tone for judges. And in Samson, we see that worst of all, where he kills someone, they kill back, he punches, they punch back. It gets worse and worse and worse. And it just shows you that vengeance doesn't get anywhere. Also, we see an increasing fragmentation or individualization. So it starts with Othniel gathering all the sons of Israel. Then you get a few judges who gather only their tribe, so all of Judah or all of Benjamin. And then you end up with people that are just on their own. So Samson doesn't gather anyone, he's just on his own. And so again, you kind of go from nation into tribes into individuals. And again, it shows that part of the breakup of society is this increasing individualization, loss of a sense of togetherness, loss of a sense of communal responsibility. And perhaps you'd see some parallels in certainly the Western world today. And women in Judges are used to shame the men. Okay? So, so often, the women heroes in Judges are used to actually put shame on men who aren't taking responsibility. Um, so, you see this in the story of Deborah and Barak, don't you? Um, where he won't get up and fight. And so Deborah does. And then he says, I'll only go, Deborah, if you come with me. You know, and so she's like the hero to, to put him in his place. Jael, who kills Sisera by putting a tent peg through his temple. Very, again, visceral. Uh, Delilah, who brings down Samson. The woman of Thibis, who kills Abimelech. Jephthah's daughter, who shows exemplary faith. There are lots of women in Judges. 
And at the birth of Samson, the angel who's going to announce his birth doesn't want to talk to the father, just to the mother. The father seems to be a bit of a moron, uh, and the mother's a lot more responsive to faith. And so there's some, just some overview themes from the book of Judges. Now we're going to focus on one character, Samson, just as an example of how to uh, read some of these stories, how to get some stuff out of them. Okay. Um, Robert Alter, again, just an introduction to Samson. Only Samson is a figure announced by prenatal prophecy with the full panoply of an Annunciation type scene. Only in the case of Samson is the first advent of the Spirit of the Lord indicated not by a verb of descent, not the Spirit came upon him or the, visit, the Spirit uh, empowered him, but this violent word uh, in Hebrew, palm, which means he was driven by the Spirit. He was like compelled by the Spirit. Unlike the other judges, Samson acts entirely alone and his motive for devastating the Philistines is personal vengeance, not an effort of national liberation. Most strikingly, only Samson among all the judges exercises supernatural power. Um, and so Samson's unique in quite a lot of ways. Okay? One of the things that you notice in the story of Samson is the number three. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Samson has three girlfriends, um, not all at the same time. He tells the riddle at the wedding. I'm just, I'm assuming that you know a bit of the story here rather than being able to go into it. He tells the riddle at the wedding and then he gets 30 suits of clothing for 30 men, okay? And then they threaten his wife, they take her away and they give it to her best man, and then they burn her alive. As revenge, Samson gets foxes, ties them together, sets them on fire and puts them in the field. How many foxes? 300. So we've gone 30, 300. Then 3,000 men of Judah come to arrest him. Um, and he kills 1,000 of them with a donkey's jawbone. So you're waiting. He, he's gone 30 then 300, and then you're thinking, okay, now he needs to um, kill 3,000 men. And 3,000 men come against him, but he only kills 1,000. So you're kind of, you're waiting uh, for this, this perfect escalation. And then finally, we're told in the Temple of Dagon, at the end of his story, when they've put out his eyes, and they all gather to mock him, how many people are there in the temple? 3,000. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a, a picture of the escalation of violence or the escalation of re revenge. I want to say, I, I've always said it's um, uh, whatever that is in maths, exponential. Apparently it's not exponential, but it's kind of, you know, multiples of 10, 30, 300, 3,000. And it just shows that violence escalates and that vengeance you know, I've, I punch you, then you punch loads of us, then we punch loads of you, and it just escalates. And you see that here. But also it shows that one man, full of the Holy Spirit, surrounded by evil that's getting stronger and getting darker, and that he's growing, actually, in his power, in, in, in his sense of God with him. He's grown from 30 to 300 to 3,000. So it also shows a growth of... Um, power in the context of evil and enemies. And we also see this growth of power in the fact that all the supernatural things he does grow. 
So he kills a lion. Then he takes a donkey's jawbone and kills a thousand men. Then he takes the whole city gate off of Gaza. Then he knocks down a whole temple. And so we're actually seeing this kind of growth of anointing in him as well. Um, Samson represents Israel, uh, supernaturally born, but wayward. Um, So Dempster says, he represents his own people who had a supernatural origin, was set apart from among the nations with a distinctive vocation, broke their vows, were enamored of foreign idols, until finally they lost their identity and spiritual power and became blind slaves of their oppressors in exile. So the story of Samson is a little bit like the whole story of the Old Testament, where they end up you know, being blind people. Like Zedekiah has his eyes put out when the people are taken into exile in Babylon. So it's almost like Samson's story is a story of Israel. In one person, you can see that. Um, But also, there are lots of ways in which Samson represents Christ. There are lots of ways that he doesn't represent Christ. But there are lots of ways that he does, and he shows us something about Jesus. And as Christians reading the Old Testament, we do look at that because Jesus said, all of this was written about me. All of this was written to point to me. And you could say that Samson is a type of Christ. Now, I don't know if you've come across this word typology. Um, It comes from the Greek word typos, and it means a kind of a a mold, a, a model, a precursor. And so I'm just going to read a definition from Duval and Hayes. And it's important when we read these books of the Bible to think about this. A type can be defined as a biblical event or a person or an institution which serves as an example or a pattern for other events or persons or institutions. The Old Testament, I like this, flows into the New Testament as part of a continuous salvation history story. What is promised in the old is fulfilled in the new. Typology is part of this promise fulfillment scheme that joins the two testaments together. And so um, it's something that wasn't necessarily intended by the authors when they wrote down the Samson story. They weren't necessarily intending to point to Jesus but the Holy Spirit who was ordaining these things, and the Holy Spirit knows Jesus very well, um, is involved in the way that they write and the words that they choose and the things that they want to express as they write the scripture so that we as Christians in the light of Christ can see things about him. Do you you believe that? you agree with that? Do I have to persuade you? Great, okay. Um, And so... Four examples of things in the life of Samson that can point us towards Jesus. Okay, firstly, Samson's undefiled by death. Um, so he's a Nazarite. Uh, he's a cer- and any ceremonially clean Jew shouldn't touch anything dead. No dead bodies. No. If you touch dead stuff, it's supposed to defile you and kind of ruin your sense of holiness and purity. But Samson. He touches the lion carcass and gets honey out of it on his way to a wedding. Uh, He uses a donkey carcass and actually uses it to fight people. And so rather than being defiled, something good comes out of it. In fact, out of the death of this lion comes this honey, this sweetness, this blessing. 
uh, Samson is led by the Spirit, it seems, to do things that were contrary to their ceremonial law. And again, it's kind of prophetic of Jesus who, you know, would, on the Sabbath, he breaks the Sabbath. He does stuff that you're not supposed to do on Sabbath. And it's like we're seeing here that God seems to want to do things that's outside of the scope of these ceremonial restrictions. Jesus, in Luke 7, he touches a dead body, the widow's son. And instead of Jesus becoming defiled, the dead boy comes alive. Um, He touches lepers. And instead of him catching leprosy, the lepers get healed. Um, So the new covenant will reveal that God is not all about rules of clean and unclean, but about life. It's about where can life flow into death. And honey, from the carcass of a lion, honey is something... Uh, understood to be something sort of medicinal, healing, life-giving. It's got lots of properties in it that, that are actually really good for you. And is that even a picture of the cross, that out of the death of the lion of Judah, out of the carcass of this lion, you get something that gives life? The death of Jesus doesn't defile, but out of that, there's a sweetness, a honey, that comes from the cross of Christ that heals. Second... Uh, thing that we see in Samson that could be a type of Christ. Uh, He's driven by the Holy Spirit to save Israel. So again, this word of being driven by the Spirit, quite powerfully compelled. We see that in Jesus, in Luke, when he's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness and moved around by the Spirit. And so Samson is one man full of the Holy Spirit, surrounded by darkness and enemies on every side, just like Jesus. Uh, In Judges 13, we read, he will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Again, it's this word save, yasha, which you have in the life of Jesus. Uh, Jesus will save people. And so Samson, like Jesus, supernaturally born, full of the Holy Spirit, surrounded by enemies, saving people from those that oppress him. And fire is quite a motif for Samson. Um, his girlfriend is burned alive. He sets the foxes on fire. There's lots of fire associated. He's kind of like a wild guy. When, the, when Delilah ties him up, it says the cords melted like they were in fire. And fire is quite a motif for Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Uncontrollable, unpredictable, uncontainable. Hallelujah. Um, thirdly, Samson is destroyed by love. And so will Jesus be. Uh, because he loves this girl, Delilah, who's betraying him, who's a traitor. He actually follows her into being captured and put to death because he loves her. And we see Jesus actually follows his bride, the church, who he loves, even though she betrays him and is treacherous. And yet he follows us even into his death. So I'll just read from Olson. I mean, it's a fascinating picture of God. Olson says this. We're talking about the kind of divine love that simply cannot let go. Samson loves even when the loved one repeatedly betrays that love and loyalty. You look at Samson, you think you're a bit of an idiot. Like she's obviously bad for you, and yet you keep going after her. And yet you're going, wow, is there something about God in that? If we shake our heads in puzzlement over Samson's relentless love for those who betray him, then we must do the same for God's amazingly patient and relentless love for Israel throughout the book of Judges. Ironically, the most disobedient and ineffective of all Israel's judges, 
becomes the best window into the heart and the character of Israel's God. And fourthly, victory through death. So when Samson, right at the end, he's in the temple of Dagon, the evil god, and there's 3,000 people there, and his eyes have been put out, and he puts his hands on the pillars, and he bows his head, and he prays. And in that moment, it says he took more people with him in his death than he had in his whole life. And even in that picture of Jesus in his weakest moment, in his captivity, surrounded by people mocking him, standing in the temple of unrighteousness, the, the, the systems of the world, the injustice. And he stands there and he bows his head and he puts his arms out just like Samson. And in his death, he achieves more than he does in his life. So even in the death of Samson, we see something beautiful about Jesus. So we've seen an overview of the book of Judges. We've seen one character, Samson, and hopefully that just gives you some strategies for reading stories in the book of Judges and think, here's some tools that I can use to look at other people and also ask the question, how do they point to Jesus? How does Deborah point to Jesus? How does Gideon point to Jesus? And then thirdly and finally with Judges, Judges, as we've alluded to, it's an apologetic, an argument that the nation does need a king who's going to unify them. And really, he needs to come from the tribe of Judah. And really, actually, he needs to come from Bethlehem. Um, and in particular, the final chapters of Judges, which, which can be really difficult, chapters 19, 20, and 21. There's some really difficult stories in there. Okay, The clue to reading those stories is, is they're all about geography. Okay? They're all about where do these things happen. Um, because they're starting to point to the fact that we need someone to come from Bethlehem. And so Judges 19 to 21, it's this story of this woman from Bethlehem who is um, on a journey goes to a place called Gibeah, which is in the, town, in the area of Benjamin. And in Gibeah, she's attacked, left for dead, mistreated all night long. It's a horrible story. But it contrasts the warmth and the hospitality of Bethlehem in the province of Judah with the savagery and the shamefulness and the darkness of Gibeah, in the province of Benjamin. And it's all about the tension between these two places. And when you get to the story of David, just after this, actually the nation has to choose between two kings. You've got King David from Benjamin in the province of Judah. And you've got King Saul from Gibeah in the province of Benjamin. And the nation is supposed to remember and go, not from Gibeah, not from that shameful, dark, horrible place, not from the tribe of Benjamin. They're supposed to reject Saul. And they're supposed to go, David, from Bethlehem? That's the place that God had told us about. And they're supposed to choose him. And the nation doesn't. And they get into 
difficulties. And so all of this is, is pointing towards where God is going to send his anointed one from. And when you get to Jesus, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, in the tribe of Judah. And the greatest persecutors of Jesus are from the tribe of Benjamin. So Saul, another Saul, Saul of Tarsus from the tribe of Benjamin, Jesus' greatest persecutor. And so you've got this tension actually between the two tribes, the two families, the two stories, all the way through. And it points to Jesus. So it shouldn't be a surprise that Jesus is born in Bethlehem in Judah. And it shouldn't be a surprise that he's persecuted by people from Benjamin. Um, and so that's our kind of where we leave Judges. It's pointing forward. It's pointing forward to the little book of Ruth and to the story of David and to the story of Jesus. And it's saying, we, guys, we are in a mess. We need a king that's going to come and gather people up and unite the nation and be a, a peace-bringing, glue-bringing, security-bringing figure. And so, um, little discussion on your tables just for five minutes, and then we're going to have a break for 15. And a cup of coffee, a little bit of, I want to say fresh air, but you don't want to go outside. You can go outside if you want. Um, and the, the question just to discuss is this. How do you see judges fitting into the big story of the Bible? And can you give a, a, like a little overview of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation where you mention judges as part of it? Okay? So can you say, this is the story of the world, this is the story of the Bible, and this is why judges is important in the big story? Okay? So five minutes to try and do that, and then we're going to have a, a bit of a break, cup of coffee. So, yeah, really, I just wanted to give you a little glimpse of the fact that Bethlehem's a real place, uh, and there's people that live there that still follow Jesus. And um, the reason is because some of these books of the Bible are pointing us towards Bethlehem, because that's the center of history. That's the little place where Jesus is born, where everything changes. And the book of Ruth, the most important thing about it is that it all takes place in Bethlehem. And we need to hold that in context as we come to the little book of Ruth. Uh, and so in this session, we're looking at Ruth. And um, just to, uh, by way of introduction, to read a few verses from the genealogy of Jesus, just so that we're placing this in the story of Jesus. Matthew 1, 4, 5, and 6. And um, Tom, there's a slide there with the family tree, if that's... There you go. So Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So when Rahab gets rescued from Jericho, she marries a guy from the tribe of Judah called Salmon. And um, what we read about Salmon is that he's one of the princes or rulers of Judah, we're told in Chronicles. So he's one of the key guys in the tribe of Judah. So it's very um, Hollywood. Rahab, the prostitute, marries a prince. Uh, and then um, his father, Nashon, is called a chief or a prince of the tribe of Judah. So when um, Moses called one key guy from each tribe uh, to represent the tribe, for Judah it was Nashon. So they're, you know, they're an important family. Um, and Salmon gets called the father of Bethlehem. So probably what happened is as the people come into the promised land and, and Rahab gets rescued from Jericho and marries into this family, uh, 
as they get their inheritance up in the foothills of Judah, they, they found the community in Bethlehem. Um, and, uh, and then... Uh, they're going to have a son called Boaz, and Boaz is obviously the key male character in the story of Ruth. Some Jewish scholars uh, saw Judges and Ruth as one book, uh, so actually combined as one book together, and there's many similarities between the two, including that the end of Judges, 19, 20, 21, really starts pointing towards Bethlehem, and then you've got Ruth in Bethlehem. Um, and what we're going to look at is six themes from the book of Ruth. And the first theme is this, the fact that it takes place in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the house of bread. So in Hebrew, Beth means house and Lechem means bread. So the name of the place is the house of bread. It's the bakery. Okay. And this theme of actually being a place that provides bread of hospitality is really important in the book of Ruth because it starts with a famine and as Ruth comes as a you can imagine Ruth and Naomi coming out of Moab out of the place of famine out of the place of death carrying everything they own as refugees just like you see refugees today in those little rubber boats leaving their home trying to find a new life somewhere and they come as refugees up the hill into the house of bread. And so it's this place, it's supposed to be this place of hospitality, of welcoming outsiders, of bringing people in, of caring for people. And when they arrive, it's harvest time. So again, you've got this theme of harvest and abundance and these empty people coming into a place of fullness. Now, when Jesus is born there, uh, Jesus is called, he calls himself the bread of life. Come to feed a hungry world. And he, he, he will do miracles like the feeding of the 5,000, multiplying bread. And even how do we remember Jesus on Sundays? Actually through the bread and the wine, we feed on his body. He brings spiritual life. So you've got the bread of life born in the house of bread. And when Jesus is born, what do they put him in? A manger. What's a manger? It's an eating trough. Yeah, we've got the coffee shop, haven't we? Preta Manger. And, um, it, <laughs> and so it, the bread of life is put in the feeding trough and offered to the world. Bon appetit world. Come and feed on him. Hungry people come like Ruth and feed. And so you've got this wonderful picture, first of all, in the book of Ruth, where you've got this house of bread and hospitality as an index to godliness, welcoming the outsider, bringing them into the family. Secondly, and linked to it, in Ruth we see a house of Gentile inclusion. So Ruth is a Gentile, she's from Moab, and yet she's brought in, and not just brought in and remaining an outsider, but brought in and married into the family, tree of Jesus. So from Ruth and Boaz's marriage will come Obed, who will come Jesse, who will come David, eventually who will come Jesus. So she's a great, great, great grandmother of Jesus, Ruth. And um, so she's not just brought in and treated as an outsider. She's brought in and 
welcomed into the family. And um, Naomi, if you like, represents Israel. She's uh, bitter in shame, in exile, widowed. And yet her story is completely reversed. She goes away, she comes back. But she's only brought back through the medium of Ruth being brought back and married into the family. Only there does Naomi find rest and satisfaction at the end of the story. So Naomi's return is predicated on the return of Ruth. And actually, Israel's return to God is predicated on the bringing in of the Gentiles. And that's what we see in Romans 11, actually, isn't it? That in the story of the world, Israel has gone away from God. The, the Gentiles are brought back. That makes Israel kind of jealous. And then eventually they'll come in as well. That's, the, that's what Romans 11 tells you. Um, and... and it's a challenge to this theme of separation that someone mentioned earlier, because in the Old Testament, you've got what feels like two conflicting themes. You've got this thing of you're going to be different from the nations, you're going to be separate, don't marry foreigners, don't mix with foreigners, keep yourselves separate, keep yourselves pure. But then you've also got this theme, in the prophets especially, of welcome the outsider, show hospitality to the outsider, love the outsider, bring them into your family, connect. And in the story of Bethlehem, and particularly in the genealogy of Jesus, we see that. In Ruth, we see an outsider being married to a key Jewish guy. And so you've got these two conflicting tensions in the Old Testament. And to me, the way I handle that is I go, well, where was Jesus born? He wasn't born in one of the right-wing Levitical cities. He was born in Bethlehem, which is this place of outsiders brought in of mixedness. And I think that tells you something really important about Jesus. Number three, uh, Ruth shows us a house of the reconciliation of estranged cousins. So Ruth is a Moabite. Now, the Moabites are kind of cousins of uh, the Jews. So Abraham's nephew Lot was the beginning of the Moabites. And if you remember what happened, Lot separated from Abraham. He split off. They had an argument, a disagreement. And um, his own daughter slept with him, and they fathered Moab. Meab actually means my father. So they're kind of named after incest, if you like. And um, the Jews hated them for so many reasons. It's like, you abandoned us. Your ancestor abandoned us. You know, our ancestors fell out, so we still don't like each other. A lot of people still do that today. Um, they worship a god called Chemosh, who is actually very sort of evil. And, and to worship him, there's child sacrifice and lewd acts. When the people came out of the wilderness at the end of Numbers... Uh, Balaam got the women of Moab to come out of the hills to seduce the men because the men are exhausted, they're weary, they've been in the wilderness for 40 years. All these women come out of the hills and seduce them and lure them off. And um, so in the Jewish mind, Moabites, and particularly Moabite women, are seductive, dangerous, evil. Lock your sons up, keep them away from the Moabite women. They're dangerous people. They're going to threaten us, Okay. And during the time of the judges, Moab invades and oppresses Israel. So it's also the evil oppressor. In Ruth, when Ruth comes into the town, actually you get this tension in the first chapter. 
everyone's going, ah, oh, there's a Moabite woman on the loose. Lock up your husbands. You know, know where your sons are at all times. There's a Moabite woman on the loose. This is a dangerous thing. Unmarried, unattached woman with no man to take responsibility for her, culturally in that context. Warning signs. Danger. Ah. And she's Moabite. And yet what happens in this story is you get someone from Moab and someone from Judah marrying and overcoming a huge amount of history and cultural barriers to do that. And it's the beginning of a reconciliation. Later when David is king, because his grandma was from Moab, he, has a, he builds a good relationship with the Moabites. At one point he sends his parents to go and stay in Moab with the king of Moab. So uh, it's the beginning of a reconciliation between these two communities. And so, again, it's part of the story of Bethlehem is this reconciliation. And it's going to be part of the story of Jesus. One of the things that Jesus comes to do is to reconcile estranged cousins and to bring peace where there's been enmity and to tear down dividing walls and to say, we might have 400 years of hatred of each other, but that can end now. Jesus has come to reunite his strange cousins. Amen? Fourthly, uh, we see in Ruth a house of redemption. So the word redemption, it's a really big word in this book. So in Joshua, the big word was land and inheritance. In Ruth, the big word is redemption. Uh, words to do with redemption occur 23 times. In the last chapter, you get the word 15 times, redemption, redeemer, redeem. Um, and Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. Now, what does that mean? Um, MacArthur says the Goel, the redeemer, was a relative who came to the rescue. He's the official guardian of the family's honor. What it means is, if something has happened that brings shame on our family, someone needs to take responsibility and right the wrongs. So you see this in lots of different ways. In Leviticus, if lands have been sold in times of hardship, if you've sold your family land because you were in debt, the redeemer can step in and buy them back and fix things. If you've been sold into slavery, the, the redeemer can pay the price to buy you back, to buy your freedom back. And it's usually a family member, a brother or an uncle or a cousin who takes responsibility for the wider family and says, I'm going, to take, I'm going to pay the price, I'm going to step in and fix this. Okay? And so what we get is we get, in redemption, there's an aspect of payment. Something needs to be paid in order to fix things. Now, in the Ruth story, what gets paid when Boaz takes responsibility and marries Ruth? It's not a romance story. They didn't fall in love in the way that we would want to see it in the movies. This is an issue of solving a community problem, fixing, a, fixing a, an issue of shame in the community. Shame is a bit like unbalance, like the whole community is out of balance. There's this single woman wandering around threatening the status quo. Uh, there's a problem for Ruth that needs solving, but there's a problem for the whole community that needs solving. And so Boaz steps in and solves it by marrying her bringing her into the family, and that settles everything down because now we've got a resolution. And um, there's an aspect of payment, but for him, the payment is really around honor, around reputation, because for highborn to marry lowborn is unheard of. 
for someone from a great family in Israel to marry an outsider is unheard of. And so for him to do that, everyone's going to go, you, I beg your pardon, you're marrying one of them. <gasps> shame on you. So, but he's prepared to do that in order to absorb the shame and bring her into the family. And so that leads us into number five. Uh, in this story, we see a house of shame absorption. So Ruth carries shame, which is like a vulnerability and marginalization because she's powerless, because she's a refugee, because she's a widow, because she's a foreigner. She approaches Boaz and asks for protection. He should say no. Like, no, I, the cost is too high. My reputation will be tarnished. And um, I really want you to understand this. In, um, in the early 20th century, King Edward VIII um, was the king of England, a couple of generations before Elizabeth. And um, he actually absconded from his throne. Maybe you know the story. He fell in love with a woman called Wallace Simpson. Now, there's a lot of problems with this relationship. Number one, she's American. <gasps> you can't marry an American. Uh, number two, it's like marrying a Moabite, yeah? Number two, she's a commoner. So she's not from a high-born family. She's just a commoner. You can't, royals can't marry, that's shame on you. Number three, uh, she's a divorcee. <gasps> Church of England wouldn't marry them. And number four, not only is she a divorcee, she's also remarried, so she's currently married. <laughs> And he says, I really want to marry her. And the Church of England say, no, we won't do it. And Winston Churchill writes to him and says, she ain't nothing but a gold digger. She's just after your money and your reputation. And he says, no, I want to do it. And they say, the only way you can marry her is if you abscond from your throne. And so he absconds and he marries Wallace Simpson. And then Elizabeth's dad, George, becomes king instead. So... The jury's out historically on whether we think that was a romantic thing to do. I'll leave my kingdom and all my riches and marry you, my darling. Or whether she played him. She had her claws in him. Um, this room might go 50-50 on it. I don't know. Um, but in a sense, it's a little bit of an illustration of what it was for Boaz to marry Ruth. It costs him something in his standing in the community. We know that because there was another redeemer who could have redeemed her. And he said, no, the cost is too high. I'm not going to do it. I, I haven't got the courage. But Boaz did it. And what we see here, friends, again, is a picture of Boaz's great, 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 great grandson, our Lord Jesus Christ. Who pays a price to redeem us, to right the imbalance in the world, to bring the shameful ones into his family, to absorb their shame. So on the cross, this shameful thing, most of my Muslim friends cannot accept the gospel because they say God would not allow something as shameful as the cross to happen to his son. But actually, Jesus is taking the shameful place in order to absorb our shame, in order to rescue us and right the wrongs and bring us into his family. He's fixing a cosmic problem. And so redemption carries a price. And we see that in Boaz. 
And we will see that in Jesus. And then finally, in Ruth, we see the house of the seed. So all the way through the Bible, we've been following this story. You know, Abraham was told, your seed. And, and we've got this, we follow the promise, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, the, this passing of the, the baton of promise. And then Jacob has 12 sons and it's which one? And it's going to be Judah. And then we're following that line through. And now we come here and, and what we see is you're seeing foreigners brought in to this story. So Jesus isn't going to be born from a pure Jewish DNA. It's, it's mixed. It's confusing. There's a, there's a mess to the story of Jesus, which I love because I'm a mess so I can relate. <laughs> and, um, and, and so you've got the passing of the seed. And here Ruth and Boaz have a baby called Obed and Obed has a baby called Jesse and Jesse has a son called David. And the royal line comes right through this place and right through this family and into Jesus. And so Shriner says, surprisingly, Ruth forms a link in the chain that would bring David into the world, solving the problem of judges where Israel lacked a king. And a future son of David would bring many more Ruths, many more Gentiles into the fold of God's people and fulfill the promise of universal blessing made to Abraham. So the whole Bible is joined together and Ruth is a beautiful node focus point in this unfolding story. And so discussion on your tables um, of these six themes from the book of Ruth, which one do you find personally most moving and why? And I deliberately phrase the question like that because I want it to be about what moves you? And you, which one of these do you find most moving and why? So you can discuss on your tables.